Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Andre Picard, a healthcare reporter and columnist for the Globe and Mail, and author of the important new book, Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic. Neglected No More has been shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize for the Best Public Policy Book by a Canadian. The prize will be awarded on May 31st. Andre, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book and its success. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me start with something of a biographical question. How did you come to the healthcare beat? And how, if at all, has the debate about health policy changed over your career? Well, I came to the health beat a long time ago by accident. Uh, I was started at a, in student journalism at the era where AIDS emerged and got interested in that. And as student journalists, we're very activists, got interested in that issue. And when I went to, a few years later to the Globe and Mail, it was the time when AIDS was entering the mainstream media. So that's kind of been the arc of my career, this worst pandemic in the history of humanity, the AIDS, uh, far more deadly than COVID, we have to remember. And uh, I went from there. The healthcare debate tends to be marked by strong feelings that at times can come to stand in the way of potential reform. Uh, one thing that I admire about your writing is its dispassion and focus on evidence, including, for instance, the narrowness of Canada's public insurance model. How do you see your role in these debates and how can we create a constituency for sensible healthcare reform? You know, I see, I see myself writing about health policy. I don't really write about medicine. I write about the policy and the politics of health, uh, which is really, I think, uh, essential. I don't think people recognize the importance of policy in their daily lives, how it affects how they get care and don't get care. So to me, it's all about that. It's about wh what does this mean to the public uh, how do systems matter to people? So I'm kind of obsessed about systems, about administration, things that people don't really pay attention to, uh, even though they're they're really important. Uh, as for the dispassion part, I, I think that's how you have to approach these stories. You have to step back and and not get caught up in in the mythology. I think there's a lot of mythology about Medicare. Uh, don't get get caught up in the partisanship. All private is bad. All public is good. There's a lot of nuance in health as there is uh, in many policy issues. So I try and approach it to, in that real practical, pragmatic sense of, is this good? Is it working? If not, why is it not working? One final big picture question, Andre, before we turn to the book. One of the inherent policy challenges with the healthcare file is the intergenerational dynamic. Um, that is to say, healthcare consumption is driven disproportionately by old people, and so as the population ages, more and more scarce public dollars will be consumed by seniors in the healthcare system. 
Are you concerned at all about the issues of intergenerational equity and the possibility for intergenerational friction in Canada? How can we minimize those risks? I think, you know, the reality is as we get older, we need more health care. That's always been the case. It will always be the case, probably. So I think we have to put it in that context. I don't I don't think young people should uh, be alarmed that older people consume more health resources. That's how insurance works. You pay into it your whole life and then you cash in when you need it. So I always put it in those terms. Uh, you know, it's like uh, think of your house insurance. That's a little less political. You hope that you never need it. Uh, but if your house burns down, then you have that insurance. That, that's how we should think about public health. Ideally, no one should ever want to use their health insurance, but a lot of us are going to. But we're going to do it at the end of life when our, our house is burning down. So I think if you think of it in those terms, young people should be saying, yeah, I'm investing in my future as well. It's not just about my, my grandmother or my mother. It's about I'm going to I want this care someday, too. So that's a good segue to your book. You were sounding the alarm bells about Canada's system of long-term care homes and residential facilities as early in the pandemic as March 8, 2020. What did you see that others did not? Why had we permitted long-term care to get to a place where it would ultimately be home to 62% of COVID deaths a little more than a year later? I think the advantage I have is just the, the context that I've been doing this for a long time. I know that uh, long-term care homes are are kind of like cruise ships. You know, early in the pandemic, we wrote about cruise ships and all the outbreaks. And I remember writing, well, long-term care home is a cruise ship with the fancy buffets and the and the shuffleboard, although some of the homes do have shuffleboard. Uh, but that's the reality is we put people in this ideal environment for the spread of illness. And that's been the case every year. Thousands of people die in long-term care homes, much smaller numbers than during the pandemic. But that's a reality we've just accepted. And I've for a long time said we should challenge this, this acceptance of, of death happening on this scale. I was struck to learn that notwithstanding the North American ethos of individualism and civil society, that we institutionalize more of our elder population than more communitarian or socialistic countries in Europe. What has led to this preference for institutionalization over home-based care? You know, I often say Canada is a prisoner of its history in healthcare, and this is a really good example. We just do things because we've always done them that way. Uh, it's true of Medicare more generally. Why do we fund 100% of hospital and physician care and we don't fund other things? B because that's the way we did it in the 1950s when it made sense. Today, it doesn't. So it's the same in long-term care. The, the long-term care system we have has actually nothing to do with healthcare. Its origins are in penal care. That's why our, to this day our nursing homes look like jails, they feel like jails, because that's what they were. They were a place to put the indigent and make them work for their gruel, quite literally. Uh, you know, if you had no money, the state would take care of you grudgingly, but you had to work for it. And this was a system that existed in Canada uh, into my lifetime. This actually existed into the 1960s, where we had people in long-term care in uniforms, uh, they had assigned chores, etc. And these were pretty grim facilities, and they've gotten better, but they've not gotten near better enough. One of your critiques of the model is that care workers are often in part-time, low-salary positions. Yet economic theory would suggest that the gap between supply and demand ought to push up wages as care providers compete for scarce labor. Why isn't that happening, Andre? What do you think's behind it? 
Well, I'm not an economist, but I think a lot of it just has to do with the the conditions of work. You know, this is not a place that people want to work, so it doesn't matter how much scarce labor there is. It's always going to be the, the marginal in society that are caring for another group of the marginalized, unfortunately. The reality, too, is that we've always depended in these homes on, on immigrants, on refugees, people who have trouble getting work elsewhere. So that's allowed employers to keep wages down. Uh, the healthcare sector is not a, you know, a free market model. Uh, you have to have a certain kind of training. You have to have a willingness to do this work, this backbreaking work that a lot of people don't want to do. They do it reluctantly. So I think there's all kinds of economic factors. I'm, I'm not an economist, but I, I think just practically uh, these are jobs that people take as a, a last resort. You know, I talk to many healthcare uh, personal support workers who kind of aspired to a job at McDonald's, but they couldn't speak English quite well enough to do that. You know, that that shouldn't be the situation. Uh, people caring for our loved ones in their most intimate moments should be highly trained people. They should be people who want to do this, and that's not the case. And I quote in the book a, a famous uh, sociologist, Pat Armstrong, who says, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. And that's the reality. We treat these workers terribly, and that's why we get terrible care. You mentioned earlier, Andre, the extent to which the system is a function of our history. The long-term care system is, like much of our healthcare model, a hybrid between public and private. These arrangements have built up over many years, just as they have for, say, pharmaceuticals. Well, one might not design the system this way if he or she was starting from scratch. There's some need to confront the system as it is. With that in mind, how can policymakers start to reform it within these legacy structures and arrangements? Yeah, I think reform has to start with pretty fundamental stuff. It has to start with our values, with our philosophy. I think we, the countries that provide good elder care have a very simple philosophy. They say that uh, elders matter to us. We want to keep them in the community as long as possible. And then we structure the system uh, based on that philosophy. Canada doesn't do that. Canada says, uh, we've always had these homes, so our reflex is we're going to put people in them rather than making changes, rather than supporting uh, home care, community housing. All these alternatives are what we do really, really poorly in Canada. So I think we, we have to work on on our putting our values into practice is a big thing. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, there's so much to do. Is it fixable? And I think it is. It's fixable because we have a lot of examples of good care in Canada. And what we have to do is uh, scale up our successes and stop repeating our failures. And our, our system is built on a model of failure. So we just kind of keep plugging away at it rather than uh, embracing these outliers, people who do it much better. One of the challenges I think facing some Medicare proponents is the degree of need across the healthcare system. So for instance, there are some who've argued that in a zero-sum world, we ought to be prioritizing bringing pharmaceuticals within the single-payer model over, say, um, changes to, to long-term care. How should policymakers think about the various demands on the system and demands on public finances when determining kind of where best to spend the next dollar, so to speak? Yes, I think that to me is that's the big unresolved policy question in Canadian healthcare is this, uh, should we pay for everything for everyone? And I think that's one of the few things we can all agree on across the political spectrum is no, we can't pay for every little bit of care for every person. So then the question becomes, and I think this is the great unanswered question in Canada is, 
well, what should Medicare cover? And we don't ever have that debate. We just kind of poke away at the fringes. We, I, I don't believe we should pay for 100% of hospital and physician care. That doesn't make sense to me. That's not all essential. But I know that some home care is essential. I know some long-term care is essential. So let's set some parameters. And it's not going to be easy. But again, many countries have done it. Uh, I don't think uh, people have a problem paying uh, for health care out of pocket or with private insurance. What they don't like is not knowing what the rules are. And the rules are all over the map. They make no sense. They're not fair. Uh, they vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, sometimes from institution to institution. So we need some clarity in what's covered and what isn't. And I, I'd love to have that big, messy debate in Canada. I think it's long overdue. We just have to stop with this rhetorical, all private is bad, because it isn't. Uh, sometimes it's bad, but still necessary. You know, there's a spectrum there of stuff that we have to address. And the reality, and you know this, is that Canada has a lot more private spending than many countries, but we just have it not necessarily in the right places. So we, we have to figure that out. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I'd like to just come back to the, the long-term care topic. As you know, the federal government has signaled intention to, in effect, provide funding to provinces in, in exchange for something of a, a national framework around long-term care. Do you think that's a good idea? And what principles do you think ought to be reflected in some kind of federal-provincial long-term care agreement? Yeah, I think the question comes down to a fundamental one. What's the role of uh, the federal government in healthcare? And I think the, the role is to provide some funding because they have a better tax base. But I think it's to provide funding in a way that brings about a semblance of a national system. We're never going to have a national healthcare system in Canada because of our constitution, but we can create some equity and some fairness from coast to coast. And you do that by using uh, federal money smartly. So in long-term care, what can they do? I think they can do what they've uh, promised to do is say, uh, we're going to fund the implementation of standards of care. So, for example, a standard could be every person in a long-term care home will get four hours daily of hands-on care. And the government can provide, I think it's $3 billion they've allocated to that, and that'll go a little ways to do, towards doing that. But if you have that same standard across Canada, that's, that's the kind of thing we need, and then the provinces still have their freedom. So I think uh, Ottawa can do a lot, uh, but I don't think it's done near enough in this sector. Uh, you know that uh, recently there's a, a now announcement of a $30 billion program for daycare in Canada. I think that's a good program. Uh, it's economically sound. It's a way of getting women uh, to remain in the workforce. But my response to that was, well, why don't we do the same thing for elders? There's actually more women caring for older adults than there are caring for children in this country. And the same economic arguments apply. They leave their jobs early. They endanger their pensions. They get burned out. And they do all this because they don't have adequate support. So why not adult daycare? Or why not sub more subsidized long-term care? 
uh, in a more coherent fashion. So I think we, if we're going to make these economic arguments, we have to make them across the spectrum. You know, it's great that we take care of kids and we should, but we should also take care of our elders who uh, have done their time, who've paid their taxes for 50 and 60 years. We, we owe them something as well. In the book and in more recent commentary, Andre, you've pointed to Quebec as a, a province where there seems to be some promising developments on this file. Maybe just ask you to elaborate a bit on, on why you think Quebec may represent something of a model that other provinces can replicate in Canada. You know, I think I think there's promising models all over the place. Uh, Quebec uh, has uh, vowed to do something called the Maison des Aînés, so elder homes. So they've kind of looked at, at what me and many other critics have said is that we need smaller, more home-like facilities. You know, I don't ever say we don't need long-term care. We do. But it has to be different. It has to be like a home where people feel comfortable, where they want to go, not where they fear going, uh, where they have some autonomy, where the staff doesn't necessarily wear uniforms like prison guards, you know, where it looks like a home. So Quebec, I think, has embraced that model. So I think that's a good example. Another one is uh, not Quebec, but uh, Veterans Affairs. Uh, the people who have the best elder care in Canada are veterans. And why? Because we've had a program for them for, for many years. Uh, they get a little more funding. Uh, they get support to stay at home longer. When they are in facilities, those facilities are much more autonomous. Uh, people wake up when they want. Uh, they eat when they want. They, it's treated like a home. It's not treated like a prison. You have to eat breakfast at 7 a.m. and we're going to bring you there at 6 because you're in a wheelchair and we have other people to get. It's not a good life in most long-term care homes. So I, I look to the models where people treat residents with more dignity and with more autonomy as the model, whether it's Quebec or Veterans Affairs or, or any number of examples. Do you have any thoughts, Andre, on models in Canada or elsewhere whereby public policy would help elders remain in their own homes or possibly the homes of family members longer, as opposed to moving in the direction of an institutionalized model? Oh, there's many models like that around the world. Canada is really the outlier. Uh, we spend inefficiently and ineffectively by institutionalizing a lot more people. It's much more expensive than, say, home care. Denmark's often held up as the gold standard. If you're in a country like Denmark, you really only go to long-term care as a last resort. If you need 24-7 care, you have advanced dementia and you wander, that, that's how you end up in a home there. And it's a small, tiny home where you're safe. In Denmark, you can get up to 10 hours a day of home care. Uh, you can get six visits. So you can get all your meals, some bathing, uh, make sure you're safe in between. In Canada, in most of Canada, we cap home care at three hours a day for three months. That's not going to allow someone to live with chronic condition. They're going to end up in an institution by default. Other countries have respite care. You know, you just need a break. Caregivers do a lot. They do most of the work, but sometimes they just need a break. Uh, why do people end up in homes in Canada? Often because their caregivers are just burned out. They can't take it anymore. So give them a little bit of a break. I mentioned before uh, adult daycare, dementia daycare, programs like that are really important. Uh, supportive housing, the number one reason people leave uh, for long-term care is little banal things. I, I can't shovel my walk anymore. I have a few steps in front of my house. These things are fixable. You don't have to put someone, uh, shove them away in an institution when you can get some the neighbor to shovel their walk and maybe even pay them. Or you can take out the stairs and put in a ramp. 
all, all these little things, that's what's frustrating is so many people get institutionalized for, for ridiculous reasons. If I can now come back, Andre, to the, the messy debate that you alluded to earlier, you know, it's not often we have one of the leading healthcare policy commentators in the country on our podcast. So I, I just have to ask you, if you were king for a day, what would you do with Canada's outdated healthcare model? Is there something of a potential left-right compromise that involves the expansion of public insurance for presently non-insured services in exchange for greater market reforms in the area of, of surgeries and possibly even means-tested co-payments? Yeah, I think to me, the, the key to this is what I said earlier, is let's just do what's in and what's out. You know, I like to use the analogy of a basket, the Medicare basket of services. And right now we have this very narrow, very deep basket that uh, covers 100% of hospital and physician care. And I would like us to have more of a European model, which is a much broader basket that covers everything from dental care to to long-term care and everything in between for those who need it. And that basket be a little shallower. So some people will have to pay for private, or most people would have to pay a, a private insurance or some out of pocket. But the key there is clarity. Uh, we're never gonna pay 100% of everything for everyone. So let's be clear on where we draw the lines. And it's, it's not gonna be, these are gonna be moving targets. We see that in European countries, these debates are ongoing. But it's a, it's a much more fair model when there's transparency and when there's understanding of that we have to contribute, uh, which we do now, but we don't contribute in a, a logical way with our private insurance. Uh, one of the worst things about Canadian healthcare is we have the highest out-of-pocket costs in the world. European countries, people don't pay out-of-pocket because there's a clarity. Here's what you need private insurance for, and here's what you need public insurance for, and there's no messiness. There's no surprises. I'm always struck, Andre, that... Um when we talk about our single-payer model, there's sort of resumption in some circles that it extends across the system. And yet, I think today, hospital and physician services represent something less than 50% of total healthcare expenditures. So in other words, we have a, a single-payer model for something like 40 45% of the system. And then, as you say, this kind of hybrid model that's evolved over time for the other 50 or even 55% and bringing some rationalization to the way in which we think about those two halves of the system makes a great deal of sense. One obstacle to reform has always been that these issues are perceived as something of a political third rail. You know, as someone who's spent a lot of time thinking and, and talking about healthcare, what do you think of, about that working political hypothesis? Is the public more open and ready for reform than policymakers give them credit? I, I think the public is a bit frightened because we that's what we do. We frighten them. You know, we say, oh, you can have our system now, which is clunky, or you can have that horrible American system. So we set up this false dichotomy, which I don't, I don't think is true. So I say, why can't we have a system like Denmark or, or the Netherlands? But I don't believe you can just import something whole hog. We have to adapt it to our reality. And our reality is that uh, I, I don't use the term single payer. I don't use the term two tier because I think those expressions are, are meaningless because they're not true. We have a system that's really a mess in Canada. It's multi-tiered. Uh, some stuff is covered 100 percent, physician care, uh, hospitals and many other things are, uh, you know, dental care is about 6 percent public funding. Well, why is that? You know, is the mouth not part of the body? 
and let, let's figure that stuff out. Why do we cover 40% of home care, 50% of prescription drugs? There's no rhyme or reason to this, and, and we have to have that discussion. So I think across the board, there's agreement on this. I think where we lack the agreement is, is how to fix it. And yeah, the, the fear of the public is a big thing, but we have to address that. I think we have to do a better job of telling people that there are other alternatives to uh, U.S. versus Canada dichotomy. There's a lot of things, a lot of places out there that work really well, that have less private care than us, but they do it in a more smart way. They spend their public dollars a little more wisely as well. Well, Andre, as we have that debate in our society, Canadians will be well served by reading Neglected No More, the urgent need to improve the lives of Canada's elders in the wake of a pandemic, which, as I said at the introduction, is, has been shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize, uh, which will be awarded on, on May 31st. Good luck and thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you. I enjoyed the chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>